Hey everyone, welcome to the show. You're listening to Can I, the Latchel podcast named for the acronym Continuous and Never-Ending Improvement. At Latchel, we have a deep belief that you can't get better by staying the same. And our podcast is here to give you the tools and resources you need to achieve healthy growth. As a Y Combinator-backed company, we know what it takes to have rapid, accelerated growth, and we want to pass our learnings along to you. At Latchel, we help property managers and landlords grow and scale by taking over 24-7 maintenance operations. We've developed an innovative mix of software and on-demand support to help do that. Each week on this show, we bring on industry experts and we dive into the topics that'll help you shape your business. Welcome to the show. Let's get going. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this session of the Latchel Property Management Podcast. I'm Ethan Lieber, the CEO of Latchel, and I'm here with our guest today, Greg Crabtree, author of Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits, and its follow-up book, Simple Numbers 2.0, Rules for Smart Scaling. Greg is known well in our industry for his contributions to the NARPM accounting standards and his consulting services for entrepreneurs. So I'm really excited to have Greg here today. We're going to be talking straight talk about big profits. Uh, welcome to the show, Greg. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I'd love to start with kind of like the elevator pitch on Greg. For folks listening who don't know your background, maybe you can just kind of share how you got into business coaching for entrepreneurs and, and specifically for property managers. Well, I, I got into business coaching uh, for entrepreneurs because I hate accounting. And, and so when you when you learn, a, you, you go to college to be an accountant because I grew up on a chicken farm. We gathered about seven, eight thousand eggs a day, which teaches you what you don't want to do for a living. So you go off to college, get a professional degree in accounting and you get out of school and you start doing accounting and you start to realize I, I, my brain's going to explode. I, I hate this. And <laughs> now it's a useful thing. It is an important thing, but we teach it wrong we apply it wrong. And, you know, I just, you know, something just kind of clicked in me, you know, early on in my career of figuring out how to use accounting as a tool to make things happen rather than it being the end be all to end all. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm one of the bigger critics of my own profession and, and my partners of, of, that are in the traditional services are going, listen, guys, you know, we, we need to be doing a better job of serving the entrepreneur because my, my belief is, and I, I believe this is, is defensible, it's the entrepreneurs, the privately held businesses, especially in the U.S. economy, that really drive the economy. We're the driving right. force. We're the ones who employ the people. We're the ones that make this most significant impact on our communities. And and what I don't really like to see is people that have good effort, good intention fail because of just bad information or bad structure of things that can be solved. And, and it, it shouldn't be that hard. And, and so um, I was fortunate enough to be part of a, a uh, joined an organization called the Entrepreneurs Organization back in 2001. And that was really kind of what got me out of my local geography is, you know, it's an international organization for entrepreneurs. Uh, and you know, and, and getting away from my locale, I, I kind of got to see the world in a different way. 
And and really, it kind of there was many folks and roles that I had in that organization. I served on their global board for three years. Cool. That gave me the confidence to say, "Hey, I, I know some stuff that can help people." And then, really, I got off the global board in '09 and really started formally, really trying to craft a consulting practice. Cool. And we flipped we flipped our business model in our accounting firm at that time to say we lead with consulting. And oh, by the way, if you're if our consulting clients need tax, financial statements, outsourced bookkeeping. We'll do those things for our consulting clients. Uh, Whereas the the industry is geared to do it the other way. They try to do the compliance stuff and say, oh, by the way, let me do some consulting, you know, when I'm not busy doing your tax return. Well, I got news for you. When you're trying to help a business run, you better be available. I mean, at least within a reasonable notice. You can't go, you can't disappear during tax season like we're, you know, I, you know, I'm one of the few accountants that's actually talking to people like you right now at this point in time in the U.S. because this is the middle of tax season. And, and it's like, well, that had nothing to do with me. I'm busy 12 months out of the year. And, 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 and so that's really kind of the thing is you've got to be intentional about doing what's the most important thing first because it's exactly what we tell our clients to do. Well, why don't we do it as a profession? And, and we, we just have it all backwards. And so those are the kind of the frustrations that led to it. And then as we've tested the theory, I mean, it's, it's, it's proven quite well. And, and uh, so I, I couldn't be more happy with it and continuing yeah. to try to grow and help people every day. Was the sort of, were you basically seeing that these companies were, you know, doing, doing taxes and accounting just for the purposes of, I got to do my accounting and yeah. taxes, I got to have books, yeah. but that they weren't really leveraging them to make, the important business decisions is that kind of it, it, exactly it becomes you know you're looking at the wrong end of the cow i mean at that Ooh. point you know because you're it's the output and it's like well they have to be done the financial statements have to be done for the bank you know what happens to most financial statements that get done you know they go to the bank they go in somebody's drawer i mean you know the credit analyst might do his little magic of takeoff but they're yeah. looking at a singular moment in time I, I got news for you. You can't run your business based on December 31 annual financials that come out once a year late. It, it doesn't, they don't come out on December 31st. They come out in May. Yeah. Well, who, you can't run your business like that. You got to have timely information. And so as entrepreneurs who really get it and are passionate about it. So I, I listen more to my clients who are the entrepreneurs than the accountants. And, and it's like, well, what do you need? And, mm -hmm. and, and it's like, you know, and you start listening to them and then you look at the most successful ones. They can't tell you exactly what it is, but I started paying attention to those guys and going, hmm, what are they really saying? What are they really mm -hmm. thinking about to run this successful business when this poor person over here who means well, working really hard, is failing? It, why? And, and, and when you ask the question why enough times, you start to tease out, you know, what's really needed. And the answer is what's really needed is good management data that's very timely and quick. I, I, you know, one of the nice things I've, I've had the advantage to, to present my material, you know, all over the world. And, and the one thing that I've learned is the only difference between a first world economy and a third world economy is the speed in which business happens. We're fortunate in North America, U.S. and Canada, Australia kind of works this way as well, is that, you know, there's good trust systems in the marketplace. Money m moves quickly. 
we've moved to a much more friendly terms and conditions environment of customers and vendors working more cooperatively together and really shortening a business cycle from beginning to end. Uh, and, and at least if it's a long business cycle, money is moving rateably throughout that cycle. When you go to the, uh, right before COVID shut down, I uh, spit us everybody down. I was in the Middle East and UAE doing some presentations in East cool. Africa. They're not lacking for demand. What they're lacking for is an effective e economic system that allows for money to move quickly through the system. The, the government who's promoting entrepreneurism in all those countries are the worst payers. I mean, they're in, in the U.S., we enjoy a pretty, pretty solid federal payment system that if you're a government contractor, you get paid timely and pretty much flows as you're incurring cost. And, and that's a huge component, you know, of, of how things work. And so as you start to look at those things, you say, OK, well, if we have this advantage, well, how do I leverage that to the greatest degree? And, mm -hmm. and really, as we start to then break down business models, you know, you start to say, OK, there's there's these patterns to follow. So all I am is a pattern observer and pattern replicator. I look for patterns and say, how can this be repeated so that it, at the end of the day, all I want anybody listening to this podcast to do is know that your only impediment to growth is execution. It ain't cash. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's it, that you just got to go get the right strategy and faithfully execute it consistently and not phase in and phase out of focus on your business. Yeah, you know, I, looking at all the work you've done um, and the, the presentations you give, it's easy to see, you know, you've done this, this huge data study and you've looked at the patterns and taken a very analytical approach to looking at, you know, what are the universal concepts that, that help yeah. entrepreneurs achieve success, right? And mm -hmm. right. maybe we can kind of start from these kind of universal concepts yeah. that you've kind of talked about for success. I know um, there, there are yeah. kind of three big ones and yeah. I won't yeah. put words in your mouth. Maybe we can get a quick recap well, of the three. Yeah, and, so, so it really came down to, I was having dinner with one of my clients up in uh, Canada and, and we were you know, as entrepreneur geeks do, we talk about business for, for fun. And, and so we were, and I said, you know, it, it was just this kind of flash of a, of a, of a, a cohesive idea. And I said, really, there's really three things that you need to be successful in business. I said, number one is you better figure out what the market needs. And, and once again, I, I live in a profession that's selling a market, sometimes stuff it doesn't need. Well, just, just warn you. Um, you know, and, and so I, you know, I, I really hold my team accountable that, listen, I, I will say no, I, I'm not about selling you stuff to make revenue. I'm about doing something you need. And if, if you ask me to do something, and I don't think you need it. I'm going to say no, go get it from somebody else, because I'm not convinced that that's actually valuable, that, that you actually need it. Secondly, you, you've got to do it in a way that is effectively interfacing with the customer. And, and so once again, one of the things that makes speed happen in an economy is trust. And if you don't have trust, business slows down. And, and so, so once again, I'm doing something that's needed and I'm doing it in a way that is good. It's a win-win for the provider and the, the customer and everybody through the chain of that, that approach. Once I'm accomplishing that need, I then have to say, but, to survive, this is physics. I must be profitable doing it, and so it, it's just like oxygen. You you, you got to have profit. Now, 
The thing that I've learned in the last five years, though, that is now become our number one key performance indicator for every business we look at is a concept called return on invested capital. Uh, it was not something that was on my radar until uh, I, I participate in an executive ed program at Horton that the entrepreneurs organization puts on. And I get to chair that program because I'm one of the few financial people in, in the world of EO. And, and so first year I'm sitting through the program, going through the content, just like everybody else. And, mm-hmm. um, and the lead professors up there talking about return on invested capital. And I'm going, Hmm, you know, I did that con- calculation in college, but I've never done it for a client since. Mm-hmm. And in the public markets, there's an established way of doing that calculation. And there's a few adaptations that as we go through in the book, we talk about how to, how to determine what invested capital is a quick idea is, Take the equity of your business, cash or, or assets minus liabilities. That's equity is what you have invested in your business. Strip out the non-business necessary assets, the non-business necessary liabilities, because we all have trash on our balance sheet, Ooh. you know, in the in the business. Get down to the stuff that really is needed to turn over the business. That's your invested capital. It, it's just like a CD at the bank. How much return should I get? Except it should get a little more return than a CD these days, and, and so so the public markets, which is an after-tax return, their numbers is somewhere between fifteen and twenty-five percent, somewhere around in there. In most cases, some are some are worse, you know, and some are, are a little bit better, but not phenomenally better. But the for the private market, there's not really a standard, and I was intent on setting a standard. So we had a 50 company model that I used uh, of our clients all across the U.S., all different industries. And, and we were able to determine. And, and so far, I've not seen a U.S. based business that couldn't meet this standard that we now set your profit target at a minimum of 50 percent of, of invested capital. So if I take a, a million dollars of invested capital to run my business to fund the assets, including cash that it needs, minus the liabilities that it carries, I should make a minimum $500,000 in profit. I don't care what that 500 is as a percentage to revenue. We've had this wrong all, all the time. It's not about profit as a percent to revenue. It's a profit as a percent to capital invested. Huh. Now, it, as we figured that out and then started monitoring it, 50 is the minimum percentage. Really, the average is closer to 75 to 100, but, but there's there's normal quantities for every type of business. If you're in retail, it's one number. If you're in manufacturing, it's another number. If you're in services, it's another number. This is the thing that ought to get every property management company excited. The number for property management companies should be close to about 150% return. 150%. Yeah, because there's there's not a lot of capital involved in a property management business literally and 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 i i'm really intent on this industry to get people to really focus on isolation of activities Mm. i don't care if you own the properties all of it or a little bit of it or none of it i want to isolate a property management business to say what do i get in management fees and what are the costs that it takes me to operate it Mm-hmm. And I and I look. We have enough of these clients. I've done some mastermind groups with with these these industries, and we've seen enough data sets that we, we I can tell you that your main investment is largely your two months of cash that you should always have in operating expenses. You have very little fixed assets, and you know, and there's really not 
not much else. You, know, you don't have any receivables either. You should be you should be paid timely for everything you do. So cash should move very quickly through your business. So if and, I'm a uh, property manager trying to under, like break down for me, what does return on invested capital mean? It, it, is the way I would do this? I would say all of the ex money I put out, all of my expenses every month to run my business. That is my invested capital. Is that no. how this? No, because yeah, because really this is the thing that that most entrepreneurs struggle with. So there's Ooh. two two pieces of financial information, and one of them you're used to looking at, and the other one you ignore, and you're ignoring the one that you need to look at. It's called the balance sheet. Ooh. So the P and L it tells you the it's the P and L is your speedometer. It it tells you the output of of your engine of the business. Ooh. The balance sheet is telling you what do I have invested in the house that I built? And, and that, I mean, you just use a property equation. I mean, you know, it's no different than, Oh, well, if I build a piece of real estate that I'm going to rent out the rent, the, the net rent rental income after expenses is the, the speedometer gauge, but the asset, the net asset minus debt and all those things that that's my investment in, in the property. Well, a business is exactly the same thing. What I'm telling you is, in cash on cash return in the real estate industry in your mindset, you know, typically you're trying to get somewhere between a six to a 12% return, maybe 15, you know, nowadays in, in uh, single or uh, multifamily dwellings, cap rates are as low as four and less, even in some cases, yeah. so those are kind of crazy. I'm telling you in a business, it's exactly the same thing. What's your cash on cash return of that business? And, and so, so here, here's, if you're starting a property management business, here's the inputs. Well, you start off and well, I don't have any customers. Okay, well, I, I, I got to go go get some people that are going to, you know, do business with me. And so essentially the first thing that's going to happen is I've got some operating expenses that I got to spend money for. So I'm going to lose some money to get started and I'm going to invest in some equipment and, and those things. And then I've also got to make sure that for, for whatever my monthly operating expenses of, of labor plus rent, utilities, paper supplies, whatever, that's my monthly operating expense number. I'm going to have cash at all times of two times that number. I don't have any receivables. You get to bill as you go. And so yeah. therefore, um, you know, so really I don't have any assets other than my fixed assets plus my cash. And I don't, I don't get terms on anything. I don't have any vendors giving me credit, you know, in, in, to any appreciable degree. So really my invested capital is, you know, if I'm running, uh, if, if I'm going to run a business with a hundred thousand dollars of monthly operating cost, I'm going to have cash of 200,000 at all times. That's my two month standard. That's really, that maybe, maybe a hundred grand of fixed assets tops. You're looking at 300 grand of invested capital. So your minimum profit target that you're trying to get to is 150,000. So of what those expenses, how do how can I get as quickly as possible? Now I can't get there overnight. Yeah. So what I've got to do, and, and this is kind of a concept I talk about in the 2.0 book, I call it launch capital. This is all this money that I've made a bet with. I've made a bet to launch this business and I'm going to make a bet to lose this money until I break even and then Break even is not the goal. I got to get to $150,000 of profit because I got $300,000 continuously sitting there invested that needs a return. Whoa. 
Now, the thing is, is typically once I get, you know, you probably can actually get higher than that 150. Typically, I would say almost all of our well-run property management clients operated over 100% return. On wow. That's awesome. I'm doing one right now for one in the Northwest, and I mean, they're about 150% returns where they're at. Uh, does that equation change at all if you're looking at a company that's saying, hey, I want to I wanna double, I want to grow my doors, I want to grow the size yeah. of my company 100% a year? Does that so, that's, a, that's a great question because what you do, and this, this is where we come up with a technique that is not comfortable with the traditional accounting industry because mm. their idea is they just mush it all together and tell you, oh, this is your P&L. So, mm. No, it's not. It's two different activities. I have a slice of my business that is operating profitably. It's the normative operation of my business. And then I have the slice that is my bet. I'm making a speculative advance spin. There's three things that you primarily spend on that speculative advance spin. Number one is marketing. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so, okay, so I'm going to invest in leads and I'm going to invest in a, a system, you know, to constantly get out there and where, where am I getting leads and, and that, where am I attacking those things? Second one is I got to add people before I can fully utilize them. And that's the most difficult part in scaling mm -hmm. because it, it sounds like a good plan and it can be a good plan, but you got to manage it really effectively because it's really easy for adding a person before they can truly be utilized. And it alters people's understanding of what, what busy is. They're busy, but they're really not earning their keep. Mm -hmm. and, and you've got to really hold them accountable and say, I know you're busy, but until we get management fees grown from 2 million a year to 3 million a year, I'm, you're not paying for yourself. Yeah. So tell me when our MRR is going to get to three million a year run. Now the thing is, this is the this is the other superpower of this industry. I know when I'm on that run rate in a month. This is this is one of the better industries that gets reasonably good monthly data. Normally, I'm going to tell people that a month is a highly inaccurate period of time, but this is an industry where a month is a pretty important period of time. Now, next is three months, so rolling threes. Mm -hmm. But what I'm really trying to do is get that business to that effective run rate, that three-month run rate as soon as possible. Because I really could care less what January to December totals out to be. You just need that to file your tax return. What I really want to do is get a business on a consistent run rate. And what we typically see in property management businesses that are trying to scale is they'll get it on a good run. Things are looking good. Then you take your eye off the ball and things come off Ooh. of it. And so my revenue might be fine, but I get sloppy with my expenses and I tell myself, yeah, we're going to grow. And I add those costs and, you know, no, no more horsepower you know, comes I, out of it. Yeah, I think one of the uh, – this is partly why we – created Latchel that we wanted to create opportunity for property management companies to actually bypass the fixed cost problem and say, let mm -hmm. me actually convert this to a variable cost. So when you're talking about like, specifically maintenance for us, but there's mm -hmm. a ton of yeah. companies out there doing all kinds of crazy things for yeah. us, it's maintenance, but that rather than having that fixed cost of my next maintenance coordinator, mm -hmm. even though I, I have one that I could just make way more labor efficient. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, you say, okay, instead of during the fixed cost, I'm going to have that variable cost per unit. Now I have mm -hmm. a greater line of sight to getting to profit. That's right. Yep. Ideally. Um, I'm curious, are there, 
in that that so I'm gonna get to a couple other things, but just before I, we we segue here, in terms of the growth that you see in in property managers, are, are there a few things that you think stand out as um, the right way to grow versus like the wrong way to grow? Well, I mean, number one, I mean, to us, it, it, it's kind of an unusual thing. We normally take labor and split it between direct and management labor in most of our business models because we think there's a there's an art to that. Uh, in the new book, I have a pretty detailed um, chapter on labor efficiency ratio utilization that, that builds on the salary cap concepts of the first book and those things. But uniquely to the property management industry, we believe they are one that can actually use a singular method of I don't really care if you call it director management. It's it's one number. It's mm -hmm. your your monthly revenues have to be at least two times what you spend in all labor dollars. And assuming mm -hmm. and especially that means the owner being paid a market based wage themselves. And, and so as long as they're not cheating and you know paying a minimum wage and then taking distributions. Now, you know, if you're, you know, now if you're not working in the business, that, that, that doesn't count. But if you're actively performing a function that if you got run over by a bus and somebody had to do your job, what would you pay them? That's the number that needs to be in there. And it, it, it's just an absolute harsh reality that it has, it has to be at least a two. It's hard to get a lot above a two. I mean, you, you may get there for a little while, but it tends, there's some market forces that tend to push it back. Mm -hmm. And the ones that can't get to a two, you know, usually I would say they're trying to spend too much on labor to go win new customers versus using marketing, lead analysis, mm -hmm. and those types of things. And so this and is once like again, hiring like three BDMs to just pound. Yeah, it, that's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I yeah, business development managers are important and and they're needed, but you know, I. This may hurt some people's feelings, but when when you're using a human to be a growth engine, it's Cro-Magnon marketing. You know, it's one human talking to one human saying, hey, you need property management services? We got property management. We, we can do property. You, you, you need some? Can you can you do that? And, and it it's the most expensive and many times not near as effective as. You know, because really when you break it down, you know, we, we've had this wrong for a long time. We, we say sales and marketing. Well, it's like, no, it should be marketing and sales. Marketing must always precede sales. I, you know, it, you, you, even a salesperson has to market first to then get a sale. If you're intellectually honest about the sequence of the transactions. And, and, and realistically, I think the the lazy way of growing is to throw labor at a problem i don't care if it's operations manufacturing sales service you name it i mean every client that we have that is under their profit target is because it's absolutely abjectly bad labor management yeah and and it's things of i don't select the right labor i don't have the right divisions of responsibilities i don't hold people accountable you know name, name all of those things but when you get the labor equation right and you get the functions and the best leverage of, of effective techniques working, you know, that, that, that tends to make these companies profitable. And, you know, it, it's, it is, I mean, it sounds simple it is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple, you know, in, in the idea of it. 
I think um, I think this is actually a good place to uh, shift a bit. As we talk about like sales, marketing, and you know, bringing in business, I'm going to tie it to something you, you, you've actually talked about, which is um, how the pandemic for property mm -hmm. managers has really shown what's valuable about mm -hmm. the services and things uh, they do. And, um, you know, when yeah. you, you trim the fat, people start canceling the services they don't want, they need to save money, they, they're going to keep what's actually providing them value. Right. So yeah. from, from your perspective, what, what types of value have you seen property managers realizing? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think obviously you know, the way the industry is kind of structured is, you know, you get paid a percentage off of rents collected. And, and so, you know, how well it, you kind of fall into a rhythm of accepting, you know, things just kind of happening without you doing anything. And pandemics really kind of expose, well, are you really a valuable resource? Because that rent ain't mm -hmm. showing up, you know, on its own. And when you give people, you know, you know, uh, rent abatements or you, you give them holidays, you know, being able to pay. Uh, there's a lot of people that shouldn't do it, but they will do it, you know, and they'll, they'll not pay. And, and I think, you know, of, of our clients who are in that industry, I mean, I was expecting a lot more carnage and, and really all we saw was maybe vacancies go down five to 10%, you know, yeah. so it, you know, I mean, there's certainly some particularly blighted areas. I mean, New York city is going to be a Petri dish, you know, sure. looking at how things move forward, but New York, New York, I mean, they'll find a way they'll, they'll turn this into an advantage eventually because it'll be just a, a, a second rebirth of the city. You know, ultimately you just, the question is just how long is that going to take and what carnage has to happen between now and then there's probably going to be more impact in, in, cities like that in the commercial space first before you mm. get to to the other spaces um but but really when it came down to you know single family management multifamily management uh those in in most markets have, have been fine you know in our hundred company model that we track i mean we you know it's about a billion dollars of revenue of our clients that we use as our economic index. I got news for you. Well we ended up six we we were up six percent last year in revenue. Wow. You know, awesome. it was about it was down three percent in February in uh, September, but it ended up six percent for the year and just incredible. You know, I mean, profits were up actually over two percent uh, as well. Uh, and, and, and it starts to show you what everybody did that because of this outside force made you rethink everything. Yeah. And even the good businesses improved, you know, from that. Now they may not have grown, but, but ultimately, like I said, we did grow 6%, but here, here's the thing that 6% for this group had, had been double digit growth since 2014. Huh. So I, I, I'm a little skeptical of the government's growth numbers, to be quite honest. Um, Interesting. You know, okay. I, I, I think the vast majority of businesses are growing at a far greater rate. You know, for quite some time, you know, since the last true recession in 08, um, you know, but now, I mean, you know, there's winners and losers, but, you know, I, I, I just challenge people with thinking, you know, if you really trust the government's business statistics, let me ask you something. How many people listening to this that have a business think, what does the government know today, which is Mar middle of March, what do they know today of your 2020 business activity? Zero. Well, how do they come up with it? Well, you know, there's this thing called statistics. 
you know, there's, you know, what's the old saying? There's lies, there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. Right. And, 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 and I think we've lost the sense of we, we've shifted. I, I believe in the last 10 years, we've shifted to a private company dominant economy, which has caused the government's business statisticians to lose insight. They, they don't have data. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the reasons why I started tracking the data, because, you know, we're, you know, in our consulting process, we're talking with clients every month going over their data. And so we get a lot of touches and our, we're not geographically dependent. Our clients aren't, you know, they're spread all over the U.S., Canada and some internationally, you know, but it's like we kept seeing this disconnect of you'd hear business discussion of what's going on. You'd hear client that you see client data and they go, these things are not connecting. And so we just started, that was really kind of what drove the second book to be done was because I really started this study first and then added the return on investment because I had the, 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 mm. the aggregation going. That was when yeah. I then added the return on invested capital calculation on top of it. And it's like, ooh. And then now we've decided we used to do 50 companies. Now we got 100, but it's still telling us the same data. I mean, you know, really, it, it, it made me feel better having 100 companies and a billion of revenue, but... Yeah, it, it, it still didn't change the outcome of, of what it tells us. I imagine, too, in residential property management, it's so crazy fragmented. Most mm-hmm. of it is private. So yeah. in that sense, too, it's probably even more difficult for the government to have the right numbers and the right metrics to understand what's happening, especially in single-family property management. Multifamily, yeah. maybe, you know, you have your, your big companies that are... Maybe well, and it, it's it's so different from market to market too, but but still, you know, I mean, really, at the end of the day, you know, you know, I and I kind of look at it, and, and people would like to lead you to believe that things are more financially dire than what they are, and and I I just remind folks, I said, you know, there's a couple of data points just to hold on to. Number one is uh, credit scores went up three percent during COVID. Cool. That's interesting. Just, just kind of keep that in mind. Second thing is like, I, I get it that, I mean, there's some particularly tough hit areas, but where's the soup lines? I mean, I mean, you know, I live in Huntsville, Alabama. It's a, it's a nice high tech city. And, and, you know, we, we have some homeless here and there's, you know, people that, that go get that. It's the same people in that line that was in it pre COVID. It, it didn't, it, the line didn't get bigger because of COVID. Yeah. And now part of it is, is we're flooding the marketplace with, with government money and unemployment and those kind of things, you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's still, there's, there's a lot more of that activity out there. And we've, we've somewhat, and this is a caution I would kind of have everybody think about, we somewhat altered what reality is because of flooding the market with, with some of the government money. And, and we'll see kind of how that lands, but I have never seen this much cash out there. And, and I think what you're going to see is there's a natural movement to real estate investment, which guess what? The natural movement is there's going to be more opportunities for property managers. So you kind of carve out, you know, where's your place in the world in that? Is it? And, and the other thing that I would tell in terms of property management folks, in terms of do you, do you consider yourself geographically focused or can you do this from anywhere? And mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think one of the things from a marketing perspective that you have to think about is I, I've, if I am geographically focused, you know, property management, then 
you know, I, my marketing span has to be altered to affect that geographic focus. Mm -hmm. If I can do it anywhere from any place and I kind of have my focus then of what's that perfect property look like that I'm good at, then I can focus in on, there's a lot more of those people, but they could be anywhere in that. And when you're talking about the, the geo focus versus going anywhere, are you talking about uh, property investors buying property out of state? Or are you talking about third party managers? But it's like you being, a, you being a management company that is based in, you know, Las Vegas, but you are managing properties in California and Texas oh. and Tennessee. And, you know, and, and so, so a lot of it is, is, you know, we, when we, when we start a business from scratch, you generally start from a, a local geographic focus, but it, it's much like, you know, kind of what happened to us and that I, I can't do what we do. If I focused on Huntsville, Alabama, uh, there's not enough people, right. none of businesses for me to sell to that. We wouldn't have developed the practice that we have had I, in uh, this, uh, attribute this to professor Wessels at Wharton. He says, you, you have to change your where, not your share. So as you, you know, so if you're geographically focused and you're trying to grow, well, there's only a so far of a share that you can get of that geographically focused activity. When I change my where and I have the ability to do it from anywhere and COVID has taught us how to do a lot of things from anywhere, you, you think differently. And I think that is the trend in, in terms of if you really want to grow now, and this is kind of the other thing in terms of property management businesses, there's a, there's a high density of property management companies that are a million and a half and down in terms of revenue. And then there's a handful that are in that, you know, what I would call, you know, kind of a, a transitional phase that is going through the black hole that, you know, the, the black hole is between a million and 5 million. It, it's really difficult between two and four and the deepest, darkest moment of the black hole is 3 million. And, and the reason for that is, is you, you have to, you, you have to either really severely stretch your team to get through it profitably, or you have to take a bet and hire in advance to get uh -huh. through it because I, the people I need to add, I can't fully utilize at that point. Uh -huh. And so I'm diminishing the profitability through that $3 million trough. Yeah. And so, and as we say, you, you, you've got one or two choices. You either run up against the 3 million and say, nope, I'm going to back up to a safe point and, and just run a good, stable two to two and a half million dollar business. If I get to three, it's like the old country song, you know, when you're going through hell, keep on going. You've got yeah. to get through that 3 million as fast as you can. And, and as you get to four and head to five, things start to normalize again. And once you get to five, the next person you need to add isn't as as impactful to the bottom line so i have a little more room to front you know the next stage of growth you know once i get there hmm. what, what are when these companies get to that like black hole stage what are some of the things you've seen them do that have helped them successfully transition it, so the, the first one is, is you got to comfortably realize, do you have a marketing engine that can take you beyond that? So are you, you know, so if you're bumping up to 3 million and you're geographically focused and you're really, there's not a lot of extra properties to manage in your market without 
you know, starting to offer discounts and, mm. and that that's a bad idea. Yeah, and, and actually, let me let me clarify before we go on. You, you're saying three million in annual revenues. Three million in annual revenues, yeah, okay. correct? Yeah, yeah. So once you're once you're there, you know, if if you're geographically focused and you're not interested in going outside of your geography, mm-hmm. that's kind of where you'd want to be careful to not go through that point because you're just going to live live in a really bad place. You know, if you if you can't reliably get through three million, and 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 so you want to pull back and really really optimize and, and get because you know I, I it was a different business but same concept. I was doing a planning session for a client that was a consulting firm that they were doing two and a half million in revenue, making seven fifty in profit uh, after everybody's full market wage, and I modeled out how to get them to five million, and it was only going to get them to a million dollars of profit, only two hundred fifty thousand dollars more profit. With, you know, and, and that goes, and they agreed with my assumptions of what a, a five million looked like, and and they decided to stay at two and a half, and and that was the right answer because there just wasn't enough customers consistently to stay at that five million because they were kind of in a niche business. Oh, and, and when so, you talk about the marketing mechanism, do you be are you really talking about like the customer acquisition cost has to be right? For the company or is there something else yeah well that i mean all of those things of you know what is it are you using marketing spend to get leads and then just you know winning customers that way mm-hmm. or and, and really i mean and here's here's the error once you get to that two to three million you go chromagnon marketing you throw a human at it and then you get desperate and throw two humans at it and the next thing you know you're making nothing and you're mm-hmm. losing money and everybody's doing this and you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you know, you got to hit the reset button. And, and, and so, so that's why I say, you know, now there, there still is an aspect that you've got to be operationally, you know, capable. So we've also seen people lose their back office control at that black hole point too, because you got to operation, the ops costs just skyrockets. So, so typically one of two things are going to happen. You're, you're going to, to struggle with the accounting side of things and you build this massive accounting department that is too big. I mean, you know, you got to be efficient with it. The other thing you end up doing is you, you end up, you know, losing property management effectiveness yeah, because we, we, they, they call it property management for a reason. You, you are managing a property to an effective yield. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're not just, you know, as you get bigger, we see this in all data-driven businesses. You fall into what I call processing mode. You're bigger and you're got, you got people processing and yeah, things are getting done and they may even be getting done timely, but nobody's looking at anything. Nobody's thinking about, you know, when, when you had that first, you know, handful of properties you're managing, you're, you're taking care of it. You're making them effective properties for the investors. But there gets to be a point that you just start cranking the wheel and yeah, I got my reports out on time and yeah, I got the, uh, you know, the bills paid and, and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, uh, wait a minute, there's no cash to make the required distribution for the preferences for this property. And all of a sudden you wake up and, you know, you, you didn't see it. You know, this property is moving in terms of negative performance. And we got to remember that's in essence what you're being paid to manage. Hey, so I want to uh, transition here. And by the way, I have to apologize for yeah. like turning my head a second ago and going <laughs> on mute. I was like sneezing. You're, you're good. Um, so especially as you know, as we're talking about like 
what kind of makes these companies tick? What is the role? Where are they driving value? And how do they scale? You have like a really interesting framework for understanding almost like, um, I don't know how you would describe it, but maybe like an identity of the business. I think, I think you call it three different uh, value plays, the yeah, importance yeah. of knowing your value play. Do, do you mind just sharing what those three are and how you see property yeah. management fitting in? Yeah. And, and, and so, so generally, you know, there's a lot of things that entrepreneurs, you know, um, you know, they, they read stuff about businesses and they get excited about somebody having this great exit and all this. And, and then there's people who think that, oh, this is what I do for a living. I want to do this forever. And I try to take both ends of those spectrums and bring them back to reality and say, listen, I've been doing this a long time. Somehow, some way, someday, you won't own this business. Guaranteed. I have yet to see anybody take a business past the grave yet. And so you have to look at your business as a value proposition in a couple of ways. And it's really the error that we, we, we uh, have entrepreneurs you know, fall into in that to us, there's three value plays in business. Um, the first one is what we call a run to harvest business. And so typically, if you've got a business that the market's not going to pay a premium for, you might find somebody to sell it to, but it, it is a nut. You will sell it for a number that isn't as good as keeping it. And that's kind of the easiest way to explain it. So I can tell you that the net after-tax proceeds of a sale, you can't take those net after-tax proceeds and effectively reinvest those funds to make the profit that you were making pre, pre-sale. So you're, you're really motivated to keep running it. That doesn't mean it's a bad business. It just means that the market doesn't throw stupid money at it. Now, there's occasionally some stupid people that'll throw stupid money at just about anything. And if, if they're willing to do it, just make sure you haven't lied about anything and make sure the check clears and then you're good. But, but you're not likely to get that. And, and so property management companies, to me, fall into the run to harvest business. Um, if you're able to get a little bit bigger and, and move up, you might start to move up in some of the premium categories, you know, but, but, you, know, but, but you got to be careful of that. The second is what we call harvest until premium sale. Now, if you're able to scale this business and get it to 10 million plus in revenue, maybe in 15, 20 million, and those are rare. I mean, but it's not impossible, but you're building a pretty big enterprise, you know, in that point. And that's where, you know, you might get some interest from professional money, you know, for somebody to come look at it. The smaller businesses, they're, you know, there's so much money looking for businesses right now that it's not to say that somebody wouldn't do a roll up. But if they do a roll up, they're still probably not giving you much of a premium, you know, in that regard. And then the build to sell is the, hey, we're not going to try to make a profit. We're going to get some investors. We're going to throw everything back into it and, you know, try to grow it to scale. You know, you, you, it's more likely for you to have a service provider that's doing software or some kind of service that is scalable, you know, that supports the industry. But the industry itself of doing property management would not ever achieve that. The, the key, the reason why people need to know that is this goes back to our core principles of you need to pay yourself a market wage. You need to live off of that market wage. And then you need to take the after-tax profits that come out of the business and you need to build wealth external to the business. You're not going to build it in this industry the vast, vast majority of the time off of a sale of the business. 
you're going to have to take that money. Now, obviously, you're in the real estate industry. You know, one of the things that most of my entrepreneur clients do, they, they don't trust the stock market. And so they like real estate. Well, great. You know, you, you get to see some properties, go do some cash on cash returns and, you know, make your investments. But whatever you choose to invest in, just understand that the profits of the business are not there to consume. They're there to invest either back into the business until it gets optimized or in something else. Now, keep in mind, if you can keep throwing a little more money into the business to grow it faster and, and those, those, uh, those techniques of what you're investing it in do work, that's your best place to reinvest first. But you're going to get a lid to where the next dollar reinvested isn't going to ain't going to make a difference. It, it, it's just going to be wasted. And so you got to have this wealth building mindset of harvesting. That. That's why we call it run to harvest. You're harvesting the profits, not consuming them. And that's probably one of the biggest things that, you know, the theme of that is in both books of, yeah. you know, being mindful of that. So I want to uh, pin on something here that um, I, I actually don't know if you talk about much, but that's something I've, been talking about so I'm, this is maybe selfish <laughs> I, I think some of our listeners will be interested in this though um so you know if, if management is like a run the harvest you made a point that 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 kind of build and scale really doesn't work mm. in in this like industry but there's a ton of companies trying it they're going out they're getting tons of venture funding they're trying to build these like property management companies that they envision scaling and eating up all this market share and have mixed feelings on that, but it sounds like you might be a little bearish on that whole idea. Right. I mean, well, I mean, you, yeah, what do you think? It, well, the, the thing is to get to, for somebody to do it, they've got to believe that they can, they can be successful at it and, and be, and be profitable because, you know, one, I got to create a profitable business or something that has value to then exit. So there's only, two things that I'm going to do with the business. I'm going to run it for this profit generation capacity. I'm going to run it to try to sell it to somebody who has more money than brains. Here, here's the thing that you're going to see. There is so much stupid cash in the market right now. You're going to see people doing stupid things and don't think that they figured it out. I, I learned this the hard way back in the nineties during the dot-com era. You know, you had companies getting stupid valuations at, at pre-revenue. I mean, it's one, one thing to be pre-profit. I mean, the pre-revenue, you're getting stupid valuations. And, and you know, and, and I kept thinking, oh, this can't be work. This can't, this can't work. This can't work. And it's like, well, maybe this is the new economy. And next thing you know, boom, 2000 hit. You know, and, and finally reality started to set in. I'm telling you, finance has physics associated with it. And, and, and really, I almost called the first book, one of the working titles was Business Physics, actually. You know, because these are things you have temporary insanity sets in in certain times, but the market will always come back to financial principles at the end of the day. Right now, you see it in the public markets. You know, you, you've got a, probably an average price to earnings ratio in the public markets about 30, 30 PE ratio, which is stupid. You know, I mean, if, if, if every company in the public markets paid 100% of their profits out in dividends, it'd be less than a 2% yield. Tell me, tell me how that's worth, worth that. I mean, yeah. it's less than CD rates. And, and so, you know, why does that exist? Well, it's a supply and demand problem. 
there's money that flows into the market every week from 401k contributions coming out blindly. They blindly go into mutual funds that blindly says, well, what's the least ugly stock I can go buy? Because that's all they can buy. I mean, look at like Bitcoin. I think a lot of that's happening there. Yeah, it's like, where exactly. do I put my money? It's, it, it's Bitcoin, because there's, yeah. there's stupid idle money sitting around that people can afford to lose. Yeah. So here, here's the thing. You can afford to lose capital. You can't afford to lose money and support debt. Now, the nice thing is I'm not too worried about capital being lost because it generates sometimes some innovation. And I get that, that people kind of figure it out. But people aren't losing their, their milk money and, and not going without food at night if you lose capital because it meant that somebody had more money than what they needed to live off of. Just don't bet your fortune of your livelihood that you do need milk money and bread money for betting on somebody who's really just making just just a wild play that let's throw the spaghetti on the wall and see if it sticks yeah and and it, and now if you if you can afford to do that go right ahead but you know understand which which bucket you know i've got my bucket over here i need to live out of but i got my bucket over here i call it my juvenile delinquent fund okay that that number i can i can throw and i can take all kinds of risk you know and and when you see it start to take place in in an industry the only thing that i worry about are people throwing money into property management I, i'll tell you the reason why they do it is because they're trying to consider your monthly management fee as monthly recurring revenue now, here's the deal. I don't consider it, it has characteristics like MRR, but you can lose it overnight. You know, let's face it, property sell. Get, you know, people that, that, you know, go do property management, you know, when the investor sells the property, all of a sudden mm -hmm. they got this big hole in their income because they weren't the successor manager. Do you consider and, and, the retention to be a key metric for these managers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, but there again, you got to fight your way up in a sense that as a manager to win new business, I got to show that I'm better than somebody else. And that's sometimes you can say it, it's hard to prove it. And then at the end of the day, when you've got professional money investing in properties and somebody buys that property, you know, from your, your client that, that owned it, they're, they're going to go to the least cost provider. I mean, they're going to, they're going to listen to you, but they're, they're not going to pay a premium for it. And, and, and so they're, they're going to, and, and what I fear is when the money floods in and these guys try to grow and create these bigger companies that they're essentially intentionally operating at break even or loss yeah. and, and, and they're damaging the true market value of what good property management services are. Interesting. And, and that that's concerning to me. Well, that's an interesting, I think, segue to one of the last questions I'll have, because I know we're, we're almost up on time here. And it's about what are the kind of like superpowers that managers should really be capitalizing on to build toward like profitability and success? Well, I, I, I think you've got clear sight lines in this industry. And so number one is I know I have a, I have a very super clear salary cap concept for, I, I got to go win the contract of property management to then expand my labor pool. So I got $2 of revenue to $2 of labor. 
put any player on the field. Do I need a tight end? Do I need a center? Do I need a defensive back? I don't really care. Design the team any way you want, but that's your hard cap. I can't spend any more than that for the labor. And having that as an operational guideline is invaluable, you know, from that standpoint. And then it comes down to execution of going, one, I got to make sure that things work within that cap. And then two, then I've got to, to, to go win that next customer, win that next, you know, series of, of new revenue coming through. Um, and, and really when you, as I always like to say, when you get growth down to just execution, that's a superpower in business. I don't need to go begging for cash. I don't need to go to the SBA for anything. I don't need to ask anybody's permission for anything. I just got to go execute. And I'll, I'll take, you know, the best entrepreneurs will tell you, this is, listen, I, and I don't need to create something new. I just need to go figure out something that's already being done and just be better at it than the next person. Yeah. I love how you have this almost like an engineering lens on the mechanics of every part of property management. Because I think it's it's something that, you know, you, you think about real estate, actually, a lot of real estate, and, and you think about property management, and your instinct isn't to say, oh, this is like an engineering feat or an engineering job. Yeah. But you've created this really clear mathematical, like engineering based formula for all the different components that make property management run. And I think you're right. I think when you can take that equation as a entrepreneur in property management and understand that this is a math problem, you have all the constraints there and it's really now clear what you have to do. If you want to be a successful leader in property management what you have to do is build a business that fits the equation right yeah, yeah. well and and i have the experience of having done it the other way too and so i i, I know what doesn't work <laughs> so yeah I, I, you know and, and so it's like listen you know i i want to make sure that people make as few of unnecessary mistakes as possible and it's like you know i mean if, if i mean if you really want to try something that's never been tried before if that really is what cranks your tractor go for it you know, but but if you really want to be successful, I mean, there's some tried and true techniques. And what's amazing is so few people actually stick to what's tried and true. And mm-hmm. and, and it's like, you know, they, they it's like they lose interest or they, you know, they get bored or, um, you know, and, and you know how, how deeply committed you know are you? Because you know, as entrepreneurs, I mean, we all kind of have to fight our own personal you know, uh, profile, you know, challenges and that there's people that start and there's people that are good operators. And, you know, and a lot of times that's what you see is somebody gets it going and then they get distracted. And the next thing you know, you're off in the ditch and, you know, things aren't working. And those are, those are unique challenges that, you know, everybody has to kind of factor in there as well. But, but we really don't have to be searching. It, it, It isn't rocket science to figure out how to do it right. Yeah. Um, Well, it's like, you don't have to innovate on everything, innovate right. when there's a meaningful intent mm. to change the way something that's already working is working, right? Yeah, Otherwise, absolutely. just have the discipline to go pick up a, a pair of your books yeah. and learn how to run the business, right? Yeah, you know, and like I said, you 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 know, the the, the fallacy, and and this is why I like our labor efficiency concepts is, you know, the 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 most common error is people throw labor at a problem. And there's a time-honored concept in software development that says adding another programmer doesn't speed up the project. It actually slows it down. It's a mythical and, 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 hours, right? 
Yeah. You know, and so really it is this idea of, of really, you know, you're the general manager of an NFL franchise and you're, tr- you've got a hard salary cap and you've got to put the best team on the field, you know, based on who's available in free agency in the draft and, and, you know, take your pick and you're going to be judged by how well you picked in that and how well you, and you could have good players with bad leadership and they're going to fail and you can have great leadership, but the wrong players and you're going to fail. And that's, that's why entrepreneurs deserve a 200% return on their money because this, this stuff ain't easy. And, yeah. and, 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 and that's why, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of making sure the entrepreneurs get what they deserve because they're, they're the ones making it work for everybody else. Greg, I think you've probably piqued everyone's interest that is listening. And I know their, their next question that everyone's got on their mind is where can we get your books and where can we learn about your consulting services? Well, uh, the, the easiest, there's two places to get the books. You can either direct on our website, simplenumbers.me. Uh, so that's the, the book website that has some resources and videos and, and, and some spreadsheet downloadable tools. And uh, so that's what you can buy either of the books. You can buy them in a bundle. Uh, it's all, both of them are both available on Amazon. I am going into the studio next week to do the audio book for the first book and get that one finally out there. Uh, and then shortly follow up with the second book, you know, shortly after that. And so, uh, it, it's, uh, I'll, I'll get sick of listening to myself read next week. Uh, but that, that's a good place. Uh, and then, um, you know, email greg.crabtree at CRICPA.com. Uh, there's also a link on the simple numbers.me site. Um, and so, but it's easier to get directly to me you know, CRICPA.com is, is the firm that we're now a part of. We merged our practice with, with CRI, uh, back last, about a year ago. And it has been great. And, and one of the things is, you know, I, I, I share with folks that one of the things I learned about merging was that, uh, I underperformed for the 30 years prior to merging because I'm now held accountable as the partner in charge of my office. Uh, we still do the same thing we've been doing, you know, pre-merger, but I'm held accountable to corporate, which is a good thing. They're making me do the things that I would tell a client to do. And, and, and I, I probably have finished my most productive year of my career in the last year of being part of that merged entity. And um, which it's given us some extra resources as well. There's other things that we now, in addition to the traditional services that we do for our consulting clients, there's some specialized services that as they come up and is needed, you know, I've got a, you know, good sources for that. But once again, it still kind of comes with our, our primary principle of, I, I, I don't want to say anything you don't need. Uh, yeah. And you know, that that's just not the way our team is, is wired. Well, for everyone listening, Go to simplenumbers.me, get a pair of Greg's books. And Greg, as you so graciously have offered, you can actually reach out directly to Greg T at greg.crabtree at CRICPA.com. Yep. All right. Good deal. Greg. I appreciate it. Thanks, Eve. Thank you so much. I think everyone's going to love this. Um, uh, if anyone has questions or is interested in Greg's consulting services, definitely reach out to him. Greg, thanks for being so generous with your time. Yep sharing this with our listeners. Good so thank you very much. Uh, you did a great, great job interviewing. So I'll, I'll happy to chat anytime. <laughs> awesome. We'll, we'll probably have to have you back after you launch the audio book and we get some people <laughs> listening to it. Um, that was good. And for everyone else that's uh, still tuned in for more topics on managing your properties, head to propertybrew.co. 
Go ahead and subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we focus on all kinds of industry innovations, growth tactics for property managers, and uh, you'll be able to keep in touch on our next Crowdcast and next podcast so you can see Greg when he comes back in uh, maybe a couple months to talk more about his uh, audiobook. Good deal. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date. Hit that subscribe button. Give us some love. Maybe give us a five-star review, too, if you like what you're hearing. And I have an ask for you. I'd like you to go to latchel.com and click the book a demo button to schedule time to talk with us. We want to hear about your business, how you've been, how you're growing, how maintenance is going at your company. Maybe we can work together. Maybe not but you won't know unless you talk to us. So go to latchel.com, click the book a demo button. I'm looking forward to talking to you. I know the rest of our team here is. So go do that as soon as you can. Thanks everyone. See you back next week.